Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. This is episode 34. Uh, I have a, a patio office, I like to call it, just out on the deck overlooking the trees, and I find that's my happy spot while I write. This is author Eddie Budel Tan joining us on a Zoom call from his happy spot in Vancouver. With an easy and calming tone, Eddie talks about his latest novel, The Rebellious Tide, whose main character, a young man named Sebastian, goes on a journey to find his father. So Sebastian lives most of his life not knowing who his father is and having a very limited amount of information as to who this mysterious man is. And throughout the years, he's created something of a of a persona, this imaginary reflection of who he thinks his father is based on the small bits of information that he's been able to gather from his mother. And it's not a flattering picture. So he blames his father for abandoning him and his mother when he wasn't even born yet. And in in Sebastian's mind, he just can't fathom how a man could do that to yeah. someone that he supposedly loves and, and to his unborn child, unless this person were cruel and, and heartless. And that's yeah. a picture that Sebastian has of his father for most of his life. And then, of course, Sebastian learns that things aren't quite so simple. No, and even, you know, the, so the scene we're going to feature is from the very, it's the very first scene of the book. And I think you established from the very beginning that his mother doesn't paint the father unflatteringly at all you know so the messaging for the reader is you're just really not sure you sympathize with Sebastian from the very beginning that how could he be abandoned but you also just um, you get the sense from the mother that if there's more to the story so it's intriguing from that very beginning of that sort of tension of good or bad and how that's not a simple thing right I really enjoyed that I thought it was a nice hook. And I wondered if you knew you were going to start with that scene. Like, did you know we were going to hear from the mother, even though she's, she's gone. And that's part of the tragedy from the very beginning of the book is he continues to sort of have a tragic life that way that he loses his mother too. Yeah, that was always the intention. I wanted the reader to get a sense of Sebastian and his mother's relationship in the present Uh, There are a number of flashbacks throughout the story where you get better insight into Sebastian's uh, childhood and his relationship with with his mother growing up. But I really wanted the reader to get a sense of who they are in the present, even if that were the last day of his mother's life. And so when I wrote that first chapter, I actually didn't end up rewriting it much at all like that first chapter ended up staying pretty whole throughout the entire revision process of the novel because you know I felt quite strongly that that was where the story should begin 
And I will say that that's one of the, the biggest challenges of writing a novel is deciding yeah. when a story should begin. You know, often, yeah. you know, there's a temptation to start the story earlier than it probably should, or perhaps even later and, and, and really identifying like that at one point in the story to, to begin and to draw readers. in. it's, it's a big question that, yes. that authors have to wrestle with. Okay, so I know we just started talking, but this is the best place in our conversation for you to listen to that opening scene from The Rebellious Tide. You're going to hear a guest narrator, a friend of mine named Mike Eberhardt of Super Fun Studios. In one of those serendipitous coincidence moments, I realized both narrator Mike and author Eddie worked on cruise ships as young men. In a few minutes, we're going to talk to Eddie about how a cruise ship became the perfect setting for the Rebellious Tide story. But first, here's the opening scene, written by Eddie Budel-Tan, narrated by Mike Eberhardt. I used to be beautiful, she said. It was true. Sebastian grew up surrounded by the evidence of his mother's beauty. Ruby kept most of these faded photographs in boxes, stacked on the top shelf of her closet. A hidden archive of tattered prints that spanned decades. Her favorites were trapped in cheap frames throughout their apartment. Sebastian had them etched in his memory, having seen them every day for as long as he could remember. The young woman was striking. Every image preserved the delicate curve of her neck and the clarity of her eyes. Her hair was worn the same way in each one, a heavy veil black as a nun's habit. She began to smile more with time, as though age softened whatever caused her younger self to be so serious. You're still beautiful. Sebastian looked into her yellowed eyes to show he meant it. She laughed, unconvinced. Ruby Go was no longer the vital woman who stared at them from the photographs. Her body sank into the shallow canyon that had formed in her mattress. A pile of blankets concealed her bloated stomach and swollen legs. She wore her long hair in the same way, but the color had faded over time. I'm 52 and I look like I've been dead for years, she said. There are women my age running marathons. I'm lucky if I can make it into the toilet in time. Her body shook as her laughter became a fit of coughs. Sebastian handed her a glass of water, shaking his head. Don't talk like that. The negativity doesn't help. If you think I'm still hoping for a miracle, forget it. Positive thinking won't do a damn thing. Sometimes the only thing left to do is laugh or cry. Let me laugh. A year ago, Sebastian would have argued. But now he knew she was right. The chances of a liver donor materializing in time were slim. He flashed a disapproving look at his mother before moving one of his little black discs across the checkered board. The only similarity Ruby could find between her native country of Singapore and her adopted home of Quebec was their version of checkers. 
There were more squares and pieces on the board than the more common variation of the simple game. They used to play on a flimsy sheet of cardboard with the squares colored in with felt pen. Dented bottle caps had been the checkers. When Sebastian started working during high school, he used his first paycheck to surprise his mother with a proper version of the game from the local hobby store. She was thankful for the gift, but preferred their makeshift board. Bad move! Ruby let out a gleeful shriek as she thrust one of her white discs over two of Sebastian's, palming the captives. He grabbed fistfuls of hair and moaned in disbelief. I didn't see that coming. She rested against the deflated pillows that lined her headboard and smiled. I used to play this with your father, you know. He would say the exact same thing. He looked up, attentive, though it wasn't her first time offering this same glimpse into her past. Ruby rarely talked about his father. This man he had never met was a phantom whose absence still haunted their lives. He lived on in the rooms of Ruby's memory, where he held her face in his hands, kissed the back of her neck. Her mind housed a projection room that played a continuous reel of distant scenes, remembered or imagined, that always ended with his father vanishing before it started from the beginning again. I guess he had lots of time to kill on board that ship. She nodded, the smile lingering along her lips. Was he as terrible a player as I am? I would always beat him, she said. Her eyes were alive, less clouded than usual. That's why he fell in love with me. He wasn't used to losing. Sebastian had collected shards of information from Ruby's stories over the years to form a picture of his father. The man was charismatic and bold, a young sailor who loved the sea more than any woman. He had the angular features and thick tangle of hair that his ancient Greek ancestors chiseled into stone, traits that were passed on to his son. There were inconsistencies in Ruby's stories. Sometimes he was a gentle lover who adored her. Other times he was an ill-tempered brute who viewed her as disposable. Sebastian was clever enough to know that both versions must have been true. I was young once, she went on, her eyes clouding over again. And I was beautiful. He promised to take me to France. I couldn't believe it. A poor girl from Singapore sailing away to Europe with a handsome foreigner. It was like a dream. Sebastian had heard this story before. He used to let his mother indulge herself in the fog of these memories. The older he became the more he realized the danger of selecting the memories that lived on and those that got buried. Ruby did this ruthlessly, as though choosing which photographs to display and which to hide in boxes. It was a dream, he said, moving one of his pieces aimlessly forward on the checkerboard. Excuse me? It wasn't real. He was never going to take you to France. He was going to, she said, but Sebastian couldn't listen anymore. You've never been to France because he didn't take you there, he interrupted, his tone steady and factual. He brought you here, to this nowhere town instead. He got you pregnant and then he left. He ran away like a coward. Ruby shook her head. The two captured discs were still clutched in her hand. That's not what happened. Then tell me, 
What happened? Why did he leave? Sebastian knew he wasn't likely to get any answers. These questions always upset her, so he had learned to fill in the blanks himself. He hoped one day Ruby would provide an explanation that would redeem his father. Until then, the young foreign sailor who abandoned his mother would remain guilty. This was Sebastian's own private mythology. Things didn't go according to plan, she said as she wrapped a blanket around her thin frame. You used to make him sound like some sort of hero. I wanted to be just like him, to sail the world, wake up every day in a different port. But he was no hero, was he? He was selfish and cruel. That's the truth. He paused, drawing in a deep breath. We don't need him anyway. We have each other, he offered her a reassuring smile. I made some bad choices. But you know what? I don't regret any of them. She placed her hand on his warm cheek. Those choices gave me you. I will always be proud of that. You should be too. Sebastian sent the checkerboard on the floor and pulled his chair closer to Ruby's bed. Her hands were silk gloves filled with bones as he held them. I am proud, he lied. He leaned forward and kissed her on the forehead. It's late. You should get some sleep. The last image in the projection room of Ruby Go's mind was of Sebastian and his father. They were roughly the same age, two men brimming with such youth they seemed immortal. Sitting side by side, laughing. The thought made her smile before sleep washed over her like the ocean's tide. She never woke up. You play a lot with class structure, or power, both in his growing up and on the boat. He finds the father, he tracks the father down, he ends up on this luxury liner, and you pretty quickly realize there's, I mean, just as he's touring the boat, you realize there's a real hierarchy. Um, what, why was that important for you to, to demonstrate right at the beginning? And why do you feel like that was a theme through the book? Well, in the context of Sebastian's life, he has always grown up feeling like he had no power, had no power um, over his circumstances. So he and his mother grow up in this small town. His mother is a, a single woman raising an only child, um, working fairly menial jobs, just trying to make ends meet. And so Sebastian grew up in this, this environment in which he felt like he and his mother were always outsiders. Yes. Um, they were never afforded the privileges and opportunities that other people might have. So when he decides to escape this environment and seek out, you know, something bigger than, than what he knows in his limited experience in that small town, he quickly realizes that, you know, everything that he encountered in that town exists outside of the town also all around yes. the world. This yes. disparity between those with and without power and those with and without, with and without wealth. He, you know, embarks on this journey in part to, to escape that environment that he has known his whole life only to find that it does continue to exist elsewhere. Yes. And the boat is this great microcosm then for the world, right? Layers of 
power and racism and sexism all existing in this sort of untethered from place existence. Did you know that most of your action was going to take place on the boat when you started? I did. Yeah. So when I think about the genesis of this story, it came down to the setting. So I wrote this novel in 2019. And at the time, I was feeling very nostalgic. I, mm. you know, was was kind of grappling with the realities of the world at the time, these realities around injustice, social and racial injustice, and the division just deepening within our society. And so I was really tempted to just escape into the past, <laughs> uh, escape <laughs> through nostalgia. And where my mind took me was to a year that I spent living on board a ship. So the, my depiction of the glacier, so that's the name of the ship in the story, uh, very much reflects my experience living on board a similar type of ship way back in my younger years. So this was over a decade ago. And during that time, I just, I kept thinking about that feeling when I first boarded that ship as a 20 year old kid who was taking a break from his studies just to travel around the world on a ship. And that feeling of being on the top deck and looking at the ocean spread out 360 degrees around me. And that feeling was of possibility and of youth and of so much being possible in life. And I, and I wanted to capture that feeling in this novel, but then also put it in the context of the current day and in the reality of injustice and oppression. And so marrying those two things, this idealized memory of my youth with yeah. the current day realities of oppression, that was the, the story that I, that I wanted to write. And so the ship ended up being a very natural setting for me to to have that story play out to your point it very much is a microcosm of yeah. today's society and one thing that I experienced on the ship that also is true of the story itself and the characters in the story is that everyone on board that ship both in the real ship that I <laughs> I resided in and also the imagined ship of the rebellious tide is that Many of the people working and living on board that ship are there because they're trying to escape harsher realities. So there, you know, there's a character who is escaping the homophobia and uh, oppression against the queer community in Ukraine, and he finds that refuge on board this ship. There is a woman who is escaping abuse from her partner and the misogyny that she experiences in her home country of India, and she finds solace and refuge in that ship. So everyone seems to be escaping something, including Sebastian. Uh, but what they realize is what they find on board that ship in this environment filled with people who are also trying to escape something and finding it, finding a sense of belonging on board this um, vessel of outsiders is that everything that they have been trying to escape still exists on board. You know, there mm -hmm. is still the homophobia, there is still the racism, there is still the misogyny. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, packaged in something yes. in a different way. And, yeah. and so Sebastian boards the ship that becomes quite evident. Yes. Well, and you, there's one of the characters says something about, we make our own cages. There are several references in the, in the story to, to cages, 
And I just, it just occurred to me as you were talking about that, that that really is, we are, you know, in our efforts to escape things, end up in different cages. <laughs> and sometimes they are of our own construct. But I liked, I liked all of the different ways that you incorporated people from other places. And I know you've traveled a lot. Um, was that all in this nostalgic part of your life? Is travel still something really important to you? Yeah, it very much is. So I'd say apart from writing, travel is perhaps my biggest passion in life. Mm. Um, you know, visiting different places and and meeting different people who live lives that might seem different than my own, but um, are more alike than maybe yes. evident. Um, it's one something that I that I've always loved to do. You know, my first big trip was to. El Salvador when I was 19 years old and I went there to build houses um, to help the locals there who had lost their houses due to an earthquake. Mm. And I just learned so much on that trip, just about humanity and compassion and even just, you know, being a, a kid from suburban Vancouver, going to a place like El Salvador and really realizing that um, people in different places in the world just live differently than we do. They have different mm. access to different things whether it be education or even running water and electricity. And so that yeah. was very eye-opening for me. And the lessons that I learned there, I, I still to this day take with me and, and certainly try to impart in my writing. Yes. Yes. You can feel the sort of, there is a global quality to the ship, although it's untethered from any one place, you feel the people are from many different places and, and have some of the same desires, right? what we seek out, what we're trying to escape from and what we're trying to capture are very similar things. The, the commonality of the humanity is strong through this story, I think. One of the other, there's another character that says something that I really liked. Your Sebastian is a photographer on the boat and he's having a sort of flashback memory of a relationship that he'd had. And I think it was a painter who talked about the power of photography that life passes so quickly that photos give us a way to remember. So why did you make him a photographer? Was that something you have done or is that just another like level of message that you were trying to get about nostalgia into it? Well, that's a good question. I've never been asked that question before, but now that I think about it, I am by no means a photographer, but <laughs> I do have a love of photography and Sebastian's um, perspective on photography does smear my own in a way in that, you know, time goes on, life is constantly changing, photographs give us a way of capturing a moment in, in time. And mm -hmm. I've been doing this ever since I was a kid. I've always been fascinated with cameras. I always had a camera and I have boxes, like boxes, Teresa, of <laughs> photographs stored away. And every yes. now and again, I go, I, you know, take a dip into, into those boxes. And, and so when I was thinking about Sebastian's character, um, you know, I, I was looking for a way to give the reader insight into how he views the world. And I think his perspective of viewing the world um, through the lens of his camera being able to capture these moments in time was the right way of, of giving readers a better sense of who he is and, yes. and how he views the world. And he has boxes of photos that, that ties into the plot. You know, he keeps them. And I think that is really, uh, life is so fleeting. Uh, things are constantly changing. We really can't, we can't really hold anything for very long. But someone who 
who treasures photography or treasures photos of, of those fleeting moments, that, some, that tells you something deep about who they are. So I loved that he had boxes of photos and, um, and I just love that phrase about it's a way to hold on to things. I wondered as you were writing the story, when did it become clear to you that you were gonna tie into these large um, Greek mythology concepts? Weaving in stories from you know centuries and ago from different eras um, just really to me illustrates how similar humans are not just mm. you know globally but also over time so a lot yeah. of these stories from the Aztecs and from the ancient Greeks um, you know they have to do with love and fear and desire and aspiration and all of those themes are still very prevalent today, right? Yeah. Uh, when it comes down to what humans want and do not want, that hasn't changed drastically over time. So I find it to be a really interesting way to kind of illustrate that point that, you know, humanity has certainly evolved over time, but at the end of the day, like our basic foundational human um, values are, are still quite still quite true. And another element about this story, about the rebellious tide, is this understanding of what's right and wrong, good and bad. So this is something that Sebastian certainly struggles with. In the beginning, he, you know, he thinks he has a really clear understanding of what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad. And then he learns that it's not quite so simple. Mm -hmm. And so weaving in these stories from Greek mythology... I think it was also a nice way to underscore that point because a lot of these myths, a lot of these stories have to do with, you know, um, discerning between good and bad and, and right and wrong. Um, and then all the gray in the middle. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that reflects Sebastian's journey quite nicely. Yes. How they can coexist. I thought, um, I thought the other thing that was interesting about Sebastian was there's a, there's a moment where he's in, it's a flashback and he's with a counselor and it talks about human emotions. And the counselor says something like, well, some people, they keep them in buckets, right? Or behind a dam or uh, the ocean. And I wondered where that came from because I thought it was so beautiful. Thank you. That actually is one of my favorite quotes of, of the novel. You're really close. So what she says is something to the effect of emotion is like water. Some keep it in a well drawing from it by the bucket. Others put up a dam, but you, Sebastian, you are an ocean. And I don't know like where that came from, but, <laughs> but Sebastian's character is very much an ocean of feeling. And that is, you know, who he is. So I, I needed a way to help illuminate that for the reader, but then also help Sebastian understand that himself. So he struggles with his own emotions and, and being true to them. He suffers from uh, containing and controlling the rage he has and the resentment he has towards his circumstances, things that he feels he had no power over. And so, you know, a recurring theme throughout this novel is his own struggles managing his own emotions and, and just coming to terms with them, accepting them even. Yeah. You feel that in him the whole time. You feel um, in, in the flashbacks and in the current setting, there's something a little unpredictable about his 
the way he's going to react, the level to which he'll react. One of my favorite things about a great book when I finish it is if I think, I, I don't really want to say goodbye to the characters. You know, I'm curious about what happens next. How did you decide where to end the story? Like, when did you know this is a spot to leave the reader um, to fill in their own blanks? Yeah, that's always a tricky one because it's <laughs> almost as hard as deciding where, where to, to start. begin the story. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But I find the ending does come more naturally because typically I write chronologically. So by the time the story is nearing the end, I, I can feel it. I can feel like, okay, this is this is coming to an end. This is, you know, what I want to reveal to the reader and then everything else it's up to their imagination and so I decided to end the story when the story of Sebastian and his father and his mother had a natural resolution and and the story goes on of course you know and 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 that's up to the reader to decide what (laughs) happens next (laughs) yeah yes it's suspenseful because there's something there's something on the boat that is uh, is troubling and that he has to figure out and you sort of unravel that. I think one of the things that kept the tension for me too is that he never confronts his like you go a long way into the book without confrontation and I was waiting for confrontation and I think that's a great way to build uh, tension. I I appreciated that in your writing style a lot. Great, yeah, thank you for saying that because my editor and and many beta readers ask that question. They ask, mm-hmm. why isn't Sebastian confronting his father from day one? Why would he not just go up to him and say, I am your son. Why did you leave if his goal is to understand the answers to that question? And, and, I, and I thought about that a lot because what Sebastian ends up doing for most of the novel is he's posing as just an innocent member of the ship's staff um, with the father unknowing of their connection. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason that I did that was um, partially because Sebastian is obsessed with um, understanding and meeting his father. So he's almost stalking him and observing him as you would yes. studying a wild animal. And that's yeah. how Sebastian approaches it. But then also at the same time, fairly early on in, in Sebastian's experience on board the ship, he realizes that his father isn't going to be forthright with answers. So his father does something that leads Sebastian to believe that he's not going to get honest answers by simply asking his father in a conversation. He's going to have to be more clever than that. So with Mm -hmm. that in mind, he he goes about it in a way that's somewhat incognito. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There's a secretive nature to the father and and you feel Sebastian sort of trying to solve that puzzle on his own. I'm, you're already working on something else, correct? Are you working on the next book? Are yeah. you, are you going to pick? So you, I, re, I haven't read um, after Elias, but I understand that has to do with a plane and a pilot. And this has to do with a boat. I'm just wondering if you're on a train next, or if you found some <laughs> other way to be detached from the, from the earth, from the, from a country in particular, or, or did you settle in a region for the next story? <laughs> Well, that's funny because I often make that joke too. So my third book is going to be on a train or some other form of moving transportation. Yeah. Um, no, so it, it does not take place on a train, but I will say that, and this was not by design, 
the first book, After Elias, takes place on a plane, so it kind of captures the spirit of the air, whereas The Rebellious Tide takes place on the sea. My third book is very much on land, so it's very terrestrial. Yeah, so it takes place in a small town hidden in the woods in British Columbia, so it's a setting that's closer to home for me. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. But I like to ask authors, for you, what are essential things? If you had to describe to somebody, this is what's essential, what would you say? Wow. So for me, curiosity is essential. You know, just the hunger to understand the world and the people who inhabit it, having that curiosity to find those answers. And then also the persistence and commitment to reassessing those answers and and what one finds and constantly being open to to reassessing their perspectives through unending curiosity is essential for me that's a great answer well i'll leave it there thank you very much for your time it was a pleasure to meet you and get to know you a little better i look forward to your next work yeah yeah thank you please have me on again i'd be happy to i would love to thank you Okay, have a great rest of your okay. day. Thanks for making time for this. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Teresa. Bye. Good to meet you. Cheers. If you are curious and want to read Eddie's novels, The Rebellious Tide and After Elias, his publisher, Dundurn Press, generously gifted Desideratum listeners a 15% discount code. You can get Eddie's novels or use it on any of their over 2,300 books in print. Dundurn Press says they publish books that reflect the world, satisfy curiosity, enlighten, and entertain. I hope you'll check them out at www.dundurn.com. That's D-U-N-D-U-R-N.com. And use the Desideratum code DP15, that's DP15, at checkout. I'll put all those details on the Desideratum podcast website and social media, too. A special thanks to the first person who suggested I read The Rebellious Tide, Annie McDonnell at The Right Review. And of course, thank you for listening.